This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Cineos Health, a new fully integrated biopharmaceutical solutions organization that's the result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health. Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit cineoshealth.com slash podcast. Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Wednesday, January the 23rd, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host, Shannon Jones, and I am joined via Skype by a special guest, Fool.com contributor, Brian Feroldi. Brian, finally, we get to do a show together. I'm so excited. Shannon, this is exciting. Dylan has pulled me in on the tech episodes of times, but I've been looking forward to getting in on healthcare. Yes, and for our listeners out there, um, I highly, highly encourage you to read Brian's coverage of the healthcare space. One of the things I love about Brian, he comes with a background of about 10 years from the medical device industry, um, and he has an eye for kind of under-the-radar ideas. And so, uh, our show today, I'm really excited to have him on, because something we don't talk about enough is how to invest in biotech in safer ways. So for today's show, we're actually going to be covering three ways in particular that are safer, I won't say uh, completely low risk, but maybe a little bit safer than the biotech industry, one of the most volatile sectors in the stock market today. And I mean, Brian, I think it's safe to say when it comes to biotech, uh, I know you and I love it. It's probably one of the more exciting industries. You have a constant churn of news and headlines. Oftentimes, these are huge market-moving headlines that come out whether it be you know a new trial readout, um, a drug finally finished the 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 finish line for approval, no matter what, there's always a plethora of news. But in addition to all the good news, there's also a lot of bad news. <laughs> the landmines are a plenty when it comes to biotech. So the risks don't just go through clinical development, but they also even extend into uh, commercialization as well. But Brian, I mean, what is it about the biotech industry that's so, I guess, exciting, but also so scary at the same time? Well, biotech is certainly not for the faint of heart, but uh, if you just zoom out and think about it from a 10,000-foot level, there is so much happening in the biotechnology world uh, for investors to get excited about. I mean, uh, CRISPR, uh, immunotherapies, uh, CAR-T, RNAi, there are a number of different uh, segments within biotech that are just that have so much promise and and can really go on to not only treat but cure basically hundreds or even thousands of diseases as they develop. So we as a, that that's a very exciting prospect for for investors to get behind. Uh, and if you combine that with just the 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 global population trends, um, you know the 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 age of the average person in, that's alive is is getting older, which is a general push towards more and more spending on healthcare. When you combine those two things, the future of the biotechnology industry in general is looking incredibly bright. Absolutely. But with that comes with a lot of risk. And part of that is just getting a drug through the very long clinical development timeline. So you're talking about phase one all the way through phase three, and then even phase four, monitoring it after it comes to market. Uh, Brian, what can you tell us about some of the approval rates as you go through that entire timeline? 
Yeah, I think most investors know that it's very hard to get a drug from from the lab out actually into the market. But just to throw some some stats behind it, um, only about about seventy percent of drugs that enter phase one will make it onto phase three. That's that's a pretty good that's a pretty good batting average right there. But of those drugs, on, only about thirty three percent of them will make it through phase two, and then of those survivors. Only about thirty percent of those will make it through phase three. So when you when you take that take it through those steps, that means that only about ten less than ten percent of the drugs that enter phase one will will even find their way onto the market. So the odds are heavily stacked against any particular um, compound making it through. You know, that's an excellent point. Actually, uh, Bio, which is the biotech industry organization, uh, the trade group, basically, they did a uh, multi-year study, I believe it was nine or ten years, where they looked at the likelihood of approval across specific indications. And really, you know, you mentioned 10% being the benchmark. It's even lower for some of the hottest areas in biotech right now. So, thinking about neurology, which is really hot or starting to become even more hot again, you're looking at an 8 0.4% likelihood of approval. Cardiovascular, you're looking at 6.6%. And all the way at the bottom of the barrel is one of the, the indications I love the most, probably has dominated most of the headlines, and that's oncology. The oncology indication, 5.1% likelihood of approval. So you, you hit the nail right on the head, Brian. I mean, the odds truly are stacked against many of these companies and many of these drugs that are making their way through the pipeline. But that's just the beginning, because even if you get a drug through all of those phases, get it onto the market, Brian, you're still looking at hurdles when it comes to commercialization. Talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, there, there, there's several of them. I, some, some people automatically assume, oh, if you get it through the FDA, then then it's nothing but smooth sailing from there. But that's the start of a whole other set of problems. I mean, once you get a drug on onto the market, that's the, the FDA gives it the thumbs up. You still have to get through payers. So people, payers have to be willing to cover the drug, to offer it to their members, and be willing to pay for it. Then you have to convince healthcare providers to actually be willing to prescribe the drug. And there's an expense with educating them and getting them on board. And then even after the fact, uh, a lot of drugs require follow-on safety studies. That's called phase four. And so there are ongoing clinical trials to make sure that the drug is is safe and, and effective uh, as it was shown in earlier trials. So if But if, if a study comes out that shows that maybe it's not, maybe there's an additional risk that wasn't uncovered earlier, there's a chance that drug could come off the market. So when you compile those onto the low, low odds of, of uh, just getting a drug through in the first place, um, you can understand why uh, for a drug to truly become a success in the market, is it's, it's incredibly rare. Yeah, so the odds are definitely stacked against the average biopharma company. But let's talk about us as average Joe investors, Brian. So for people like you and me who want to play in the biotech space, but don't necessarily want to take on all of that risk by investing and chasing some of these you know, one-hit wonder biotech companies, What's a good way to actually jump into it that is also safe? Yeah, so there's a couple things, a couple strategies that individual investors can take to uh, to lower their individual risk. Uh, the first and probably the easiest for them to do is to uh, get their biotech exposure by using uh, exchange traded funds, which are more commonly known as ETFs. Uh, these uh, these are funds that uh, in individual investors can can buy, and when they do so, they can gain instant access to uh, dozens or even hundreds of individual biotech stocks. And what that does is it 
it's greatly it spreads their money out across dozens or hundreds of holdings, uh, basically in in an instant, and that that greatly increases the odds that those few huge winners that will emerge from the biotech uh, sector will be in your portfolio. Yeah. So with ETFs, you're getting a basket of securities. You can buy and sell them through your brokerage, much like an individual stock. Um, So it gives you the flexibility and also to helps minimize some of the risk. Brian, you've got two ETFs, two that we actually talk about a lot on Industry Focus, especially when we're benchmarking returns for a particular company or even just trying to gauge investor sentiment and how people are feeling about biotech. Uh, Let's start with the first one, the NASDAQ Biotech ETF, also known as the IBB. Yeah, this is the the biggest and the most popular um, ETF that's focused on biotechnology on the market. Um, It holds more than 200 companies uh, in it, and it actually has a a focus on the biggest stocks uh, in biotechnology. So, Biogen, uh, Celgene, Amgen, and Gilead are kind of the four biggest ones, and this fund has a a heavy concentration in the big names. So, because of that concentration, uh, it actually comes with a dividend yield of 0.2%, 0.2%, which admittedly isn't much, but considering you're talking about biotechnology industry, is is actually pretty remarkable. And even though it has a concentration on the biggest names, uh, this is a fund that has performed very well for investors. So over the last decade, uh, the the IBB is up 370%. Uh, now and. For comparison, the S&P 500 is up 286%. So this is a single fund that has a a decade-long history of of outperforming. Yeah, and just to give our listeners some idea in terms of exposure, um, you've got, of course, the big biotechs that you mentioned, Biogen, Celgene, uh, Amgen, Gilead, uh, but you've also got exposure to pharmaceuticals. And so, just looking at the fund itself as of today, um, in terms of exposure, you got 80% in biotech, you've got about 9% in pharmaceuticals, and even... Um, Looks like about 8% in the life sciences, tools, and services. So, in terms of just spreading out that exposure across multiple sectors, uh, I think in terms of diversification, this one is probably the most popular for that reason. Now, let's turn our attention because the other ETF that you also mentioned is one that is not as widespread, but for those that are looking for more concentrated biotech exposure, this could actually be be one that is a good idea to invest in, and it's the Spider S and P Biotech ETF, also known as the XBI. Yeah, this is a this is a fund that I, I personally happen to uh, to like a lot. Uh, like the like the uh, the IBB, it's it's spread out amongst. Uh, th- this one has 120 individual holdings in it, so it's very well diversified. Uh, however, what differentiates, uh, differentiates this fund is that it takes an equal weight approach to, to its indexing as opposed to the NASDAQ Biotech ETF, which takes a market weight. So what that means is that this the 120 holdings that are in this fund, uh, the, the percentage of the fund that is in each individual holding is exactly the same across the board. So this And this fund rebalances itself. What that does is it gives uh, stockholders much more exposure to the small stocks um, and a couple of them that are in there, for example, are uh, Portola Pharmaceuticals, uh, Neuroquin Biosciences, uh, Bluebird Bio. So you have the exact same exposure to those small ones as you would to the to the larger ones. So if you're if you're the type of investor that's looking for a little bit more upside potential and you want to have a bigger concentration in the small stocks, which can put up huge percentage gains if they work out, uh, the XBI gives you a little bit more exposure to that. 
And for the brand new investor, Brian, who's thinking, okay, this sounds like it's a very compelling investment opportunity, but what what's the downside? What am I not getting when I invest in ETFs that I could be getting from stocks? Well, uh, there, like anything, you do give up a little something when you invest in ETFs. Uh, with with ETFs in particular, uh, you do have an expense ratio that you have to pay that you wouldn't have to pay if you owned individual stocks. Uh, to put some number on that, the IBB has an expense ratio of 0.47%. Uh, the XBI is a little bit lower at 0.35%. So you do have a small fee that you have to uh, to holding these um, these exchange traded funds over the course of a year. Uh, I think that's a pretty modest uh, thing that you have to give up in exchange. Exchange for the broad uh, exposure, uh, but the, the bigger uh, disadvantage is that the dis- diversification cuts both ways. So you, because you're owning so many stocks, you're guaranteed to hold a lot of companies that are probably going to lose, and they're going to lose badly. Um, whereas if you were picking individual stocks and you were really good at it, you might be able to get a higher concentration of the winners. But you're trading, you're trading risk. Uh, in this case, for that reward, and because these funds have both done so well over the last decade, they've both outperformed the S and P 500. I think that's a trade-off that's that's worth making. Yeah, very well said, Brian. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk about another way to play it safe when it comes to biotech. But first, a quick word from our friends at Sinios Health. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Sinios Health. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, they're changing the game. As a result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, they've created a unique business model that allows clinical and commercial disciplines to work together, eliminating traditional process obstacles and delivering something they call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Helping their customers accelerate the delivery of important therapies to patients, Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit CineosHealth.com slash podcast. All right, so we're back. Um, let's talk about another safer way to invest in biotech and biopharma. And that way is actually, uh, it's interesting because in an effort to really curb cost and expedite R&D, many biotechs are now starting to outsource many of their clinical functions. And this goes to a class of providers better known as the contract research organizations or CROs, as they're called. Brian, what makes CROs so attractive as investment opportunities right now? Well, as I'm sure many biotech investor knows, getting a drug through the regulatory approval process and conducting those clinical trials not only takes a long time, but it's extremely expensive. And that means they're going to be spending heavily on clinical trials. So the advantage of buying a a CRO is that they're the ones that are directly benefiting from that spending, and they're also directly benefiting from that long lead time. So CROs partner with biotech companies and fire companies, and they really handle all facets of the the clinical trial process. So they can literally design the trial, uh, get in contact with uh, uh, clinics to actually perform the trial. Uh, they can run the tests. They can analyze the data. They can help with the the regulatory submission. So they kind of help uh, if, if a company wants to outsource that work or even just partner to get consulting advice. Uh, CROs are a, a a great a natural go-to partner for them. And the great thing for investors is that the CRO makes money on the on the drug basically no matter what the outcome is. So if a drug fails to live up to its expectations, well, the CRO still gets paid for conducting a trial. And another nice benefit is um, 
when a drug enters phase one, by the time it gets through phase three, that, that process can take many years. So if you partner with a CRO on phase one and you are going to take it through all the way to phase three, well, those trials have to be conducted over a course of years. And you typically sign uh, contract agreements with the CRO that lasts multiple years and multiple phases. So if a CRO wins a, a compound early on in its lifestyle, they get a lot of revenue visibility from the, as the drug develops. So that's very attractive. Yeah, and interestingly enough, right now, only about 40% of clinical development is currently outsourced. And some analysts are saying this could rise above 50% over the next few years. A couple of reasons why, a couple of drivers. One is just the cost of running these expensive, massive trials. Those are going to continue to grow, especially as many biopharma companies are continuing to expand and run trials on a global basis. You've also got you know, very complex regulations. In some cases, the FDA is starting to, I guess, uh, back off in some ways and make it less complex. But in other ways and in other areas like gene therapies, um, those are going to be the more complex routes that many of these biopharmers will have to tackle, and they'll need a partner like a CRO to help get them through. Um, in addition, another huge driver is just talking about you know insurance reimbursement. We've seen and will continue to see, especially as we uh, get through the next election cycle, continued pressure on drug pricing. Um, you're seeing payers push back. You're seeing politicians um, get more involved in the mix. Maybe, maybe not. We'll actually see something happen when it comes to drug pricing. But either way, all of this amounts to just continued downward pressure on margins for many of these large biopharma companies. Um, so biotechs, especially the smaller ones, need the expertise. They need the cost efficiencies. And really, they need the global reach that many of these CROs offer. Brian, are there any names in particular that stand out to you in the CRO space? Yeah, there's a there's a handful of them that are that are publicly traded, but uh, my my personal favorite is the is the largest one in the sector, which is called IQVIA Holdings. Uh, this is a company with 55,000 employees. It literally services 8,000 uh, different com- customers, and they handle soup to nuts from from basically discovery all the way through commercialization. Uh, if a if a drug company or, or a biotech needs help with anything, uh, they can get that basically from IQVIA. So not only do they have um, you know resources and a huge army of researchers and regulatory experts that that are in multiple countries that they can use, but IQVIA actually owns a database that has 530 million patient records in it. And they can use that to uh, analyze uh, prescribing habits and that can help uh, sales reps with uh, with doctor targeting after a drug gets approval to really make uh, the commercial commercialization process as easy as possible. And to get, put, give some scale, um, this company currently has a backlog of future projects uh, worth $16.4 billion. So these guys are absolutely enormous. And I love their focus and their push really on the data end, because you can see that playing out in so many different ways. You have access to clinical trial data. Once a drug is on the market, they also have a database that's looking at prescribing trends as well. So I really do think it equips the sales force uh, just with better data to go after markets to really drive a top line for this company. And also, too, they're also expanding globally. I know they've uh, recently been expanding into the Asian Pacific markets as well. So really interesting there. And um, I guess there's some other companies in this space as well. Any others come to mind? 
Yeah, there's a couple of uh, smaller ones. I mean, IQVIA is definitely the big dog in the area, but there are uh, a handful of other CROs that that, that take up more niche focuses. Um, but they, because they're smaller, they tend to be growing quicker. So a couple for investors to put on the radar is uh, one's called PRA Health Sciences. Their ticker is uh, PRAH. And then there's Cineos Health, which is the, the, the sponsor of the show. Their ticker is SYNH. And then there's another one called Icon. Their, their ticker is ICLR. All these companies have their own niches within within the industry, but since they're smaller, if if you want to ride the wave, perhaps they could be uh, more more interested to looking at because they could post uh, faster growth on a percentage basis. Yeah, that's a great point on the smaller companies. What we've seen over the past uh, few years in the CRO space is a lot of M and A action, um, and I think that is set to continue. And if you think about it strategically, it makes a lot of sense. Um, obviously, together, not only can they combine and leverage a much wider network of clinical trial sites. They can also now expand their clinical trial participant pools and really start to utilize the big data and the AI tools that many of them are going after. So, it would not surprise me to see uh, more M&A heading in the next few years in this space as well. Uh, let's talk about our third and final way to play it safe when it comes to biotechs, Brian, and that is with picks and shovels providers. Brian, what in the world is a pick and a shovel? <laughs> that's a that's a fun investor way of saying uh, you want to buy if you want to play a trend. One of the safer ways to do it is to buy the suppliers to that industry. So uh, let me give you an example. There's a company called West Pharmaceutical Services, and what they do is they're a leading provider provider of uh, components and systems that uh, make drugs drugs injectable. So they provide vials, uh, syringes, pens, stoppers, uh, safety devices on the actual drugs themselves. So. So if you have a thesis that the number of drugs that are available are going to grow and the number of people using them is going to grow, well, that naturally leads to more demand for the injectable products, the actual things that get the, the drug into your body, the vials themselves, the packaging. All of those things are actually handled by West Pharmaceuticals. So these guys are one of the top tier suppliers to the industry. Uh, in fact, about uh, the top 75 uh, biotech injectable products uh, on the market actually come from uh, come from West. And this is a company that has no risk of any particular drug uh, not 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 going well. But they uh, they're just a steady eddy business, and they have they they've produced fantastic returns for shareholders uh, over the last 10 years. So they've act, they're actually up about 520%. And that's a return that just smashes the index. Yeah, that is incredible returns for a company you don't hear a lot about. Um, actually did some research. This company has actually been around since the 1920s, which is very surprising to me. Um, but I think when you're in the position of being a biopharma company, you want that long-term expertise, that experience on the regulatory front, um, and even more so when it comes to the delivery components, sometimes getting that right, both from a manufacturing, a compliance, and regulatory perspective, is just as important as getting the drug itself through to approval. Um, so, this company in particular, don't see it going away anytime soon. They supply pharmaceutical companies, they supply the biotech companies, even generic and uh, medical device companies as well. And they're massive. They've got over 50 locations, 28 facilities across the globe. Uh, this is uh, one I'm certainly going to be watching, Brian. Let's talk about the second picks and shovels play on your list, a company that I pretty much consider a good fool favorite around here. 
Yeah, Viva Systems should be a name that sounds uh, familiar to uh, to a lot of longtime listeners. So this is a company that provides uh, cloud-based software that is uh, specifically made for the life sciences industry. So Viva System provides a uh, software that helps companies to uh, manage their clinical trial data, uh, to manage customer relationships before and after the sale, can help with regulatory compliance. And this is a company that has uh, really taken an extreme niche focus on the life science industry. And because of that, they, because of their tailored needs, uh, they've really made a name for themselves. And in, in fact, today, they, they currently boast uh, more than 600 uh, customers, which includes some of the biggest names in the industry, like uh, GlaxoSmithKline, AstraZeneca, Biogen, Lilly, Novartis, etc. All of them rely on Viva Systems um, uh, tools to, to help them with the clinical trial process. And because of their niche focus and because they've uh, been able to grow so rapidly, in the industry, this is a company that's put up great returns for investors. I mean, they just IPO'd in 2014, so we don't have uh, a, an incredible amount of data to look like, but investors who got in at the IPO are already up 177% uh, because this company's grown so rapidly. Another thing I love about the Viva story is actually the CEO. He was actually a former executive from Salesforce. Uh, he recognized that for the pharmaceutical industry, they really didn't have a cloud-based offering that could really fit the needs of the industry itself. And so there you have it. Here comes Viva. And Viva has got a number of different products. Um, in particular, they started off with a CRM, customer relationship management tool, built for big pharma specifically. But really, the big moneymaker has been Viva Vault. And that's really helping companies manage all of the data that is needed to track and analyze clinical trials. And what I love about the Viva platform is that with all these multiple products, they're all connected. So as you're a biopharma company, you've got really high switching costs to come off of that one platform to go to another. I love the fact that they've got such a wide moat here. I really think Viva in and of itself is in a league of its own. And it's even expanding beyond biopharma. It's working now with companies in the consumer goods industry, manufacturing, and even the chemical industry. So, huge, huge growth ahead for Viva. Uh, Brian, let's turn our attention to the last Picks and Shovels play, um, one that I had not followed as much, but uh, after doing some digging, this one certainly piqued my interest. Yeah, the, the final company today is called uh, Replogen. Its its ticker is RGEN. So these guys make proteins and filtration technology that enable drugs, the drugs themselves, to actually be uh, manufactured. So you know when you when you're making a drug, you need active ingredients, and Replogen helps drug companies to actually make the equipment and provides the the proteins that go into the drugs themselves. Now these guys have. Uh, literally a 95% market share in making uh, proteins that are used to make vaccines and are used in gene therapy. So they have grown right alongside with the general demand in the biotech market. Uh, in, in fact, this is, one of, this is one of the best performing stocks over the last uh, decade. Their, their, their stock is up 1,320% over the last 10 years. And again, because they don't care specifically about any particular drug making it through and because they're very well diversified amongst a lot of customers, uh, they can ride the general wave of growth in, bi in biotech. 
Absolutely. And when you consider that the equipment that they make is really needed to purify biologics and just how crucial that is, because uh, if you think about it, biologics themselves are products that are made from living cells. They're very large, very complex. After they're produced, though, you have to purify the product. And this is really where Repligen stands out in terms of just lowering the cost. Purification in and of itself is a very cost-intensive step. Um, and one of the riskiest, too, when it comes to uh, biologics manufacturing. And speaking of biologics, there are currently over 1,000 biologics being studied for development. So the growth runway on this stock is tremendous. And that's across the globe. Um, and also, interestingly enough, oncology is uh, actually the leading therapeutic area with the maximum number of biologics under development right now. So a lot to, to watch here on this particular company, especially as biologics are expected to hit uh, over $300 billion by next year. So it's a massive market. But all in all, Repligen is a great way for investors to ride the wave safely when it comes to biologics development, both on the development front and post-commercialization. So, Brian, we've talked about a number of different waves, given a handful of stocks to play uh, for biotech. I guess if I had to sum up today's show, all in all, investors should know and should be aware of how to structure their portfolios when it comes to playing safely in biotech. Are there any final thoughts that you want our investors to leave today with? Uh, I would just say, don't. There's no need to over concentrate in any given company. There's a number of ways that you can. Uh, there's a number of steps that you can take to de-risk your portfolio. It's it's always very exciting to get get your hands on a small biotech that you know promises uh, through the moon growth. But when you actually look back at the numbers and the number of failures are out there, the odds are stacked against you. So it can make sense to take a portion of your biotech pro portfolio and play it a little safer. Wise, wise words there, Brian. Thanks so much. And thank you so much for tuning in. That'll do it for this week's industry-focused healthcare show. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Brian Feroldi, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and full on. These days, bringing a new drug to life is getting tougher and tougher. It can take billions of dollars and a decade or more to bring an experimental drug from molecule to market. And only one in five marketed drugs ever achieve revenues that match or exceed R&D costs. At Cineos Health, we're working to improve the odds. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health is the only company purpose-built to create what we call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Our unique business model allows the clinical and commercial disciplines to work together from the start, sharing critical data, insights, and knowledge. The Cineos Health approach creates success by eliminating traditional obstacles and smoothing the process at every step along the way, from clinical trials to FDA approval, branding and marketing to patient adherence. Every day, Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit CineosHealth.com slash podcast.